This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computers, uh, all the good stuff. Uh, tonight, um, it is the A-Team. Uh, it is Joe Eaton behind the desk. How are you, Joe? Good, thank you. How are you going? Pretty good. Uh, the weather hasn't got me down too much. I've uh, been running around in, in my parker all day, but um, all my stuff is still dry. So h- how did you survive the weather today? I put my laptop in a plastic bag and made a run for it. I was wondering what that was. I thought <laughs> that's a fancy new case, but no, it was just like... No, it's just a, just a Woolworths bag. Wonderful. Um, I'll also be with you tonight. I'm Warren Davies. Uh, If you like your media a little bit different and uh, in a physical space, if you're wondering what you're going to do in this kind of weather, uh, maybe you should get outdoors and go and check something out uh, in Melbourne. Uh, We're pretty good at doing that. Uh, One of the spaces you should uh, perhaps check out is Bar SK in St in Collingwood, I should say, uh, we'll be joined in a second by Louis Lou Roots um, to tell us uh, about some weird and playful uh, media that they have going on down in Collingwood. Uh, also, the state budget is uh, is not too far away. Um, if you want to understand exactly what is being said and where all those ducats are going, the team at Code for Australia uh, will be able to help you. Uh, so we'll hear a little bit about uh, GovHack uh, on the show tonight. But before we have those conversations, uh, we do have some news to, to talk through. Uh, Joe Atlassian, um, one of the darlings of um, the Australian um, tech scene, they've been having some problems uh, with security, I understand. Yeah, they released a statement that their HipChat group chat and collaboration tool has been hacked. They said this weekend their security intelligence team detected an incident affecting HipChat.com that may have resulted in unauthorised access to user account information, including name, email address and hashed password. So their chief security officer has said although they were accessed, the security with which Atlassian stores HipChat passwords means that they're still considered secure. Oh, okay. Do you, do you feel safe? How do you feel about that? I don't know. I use different passwords for everything, so... Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I, Not we, that I use HipChat, but, yeah. you know. We do like the idea that they've got a security intelligence team um, yes. sitting around, maybe with badges, do you reckon, on a, on a lapel? I hope they have badges. Mm. Um, but at least they're onto it and uh, it's good that they're being public with that kind of information. There's nothing worse than when you find out something's been compromised and no one told anyone about it or gave people an opportunity to, say, change their password or uh, or what have you. Um, yeah, but interesting. Um, another thing that is uh, is interesting, um, if you're a fan of, uh, of WikiLeaks and um, uh, I guess their uh, approach to how the internet should be, you'll be pleased to know they've turned their attention to fake news. And it's uh, Wikipedia, not WikiLeaks. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, it's Jimmy Wales. Yeah, um, yeah, a bit of a Freudian slip there. But um, Jimmy Wales um, has um, announced a, a new idea, uh, Wiki Tribune, um, which is a, a fantastic um, idea um, um, and a, a very sort of common problem that we have at the moment. Um, they are, I guess, looking to solve um, the source um, and, and create a, a one true set of events and, uh, and news, as it were. Um, the argument for this is why, why would we duplicate um, all these different versions of, of effectively the same event and, and what went on? Um, so they're trying to get that up. Um, there's a great video of uh, Jimmy Wales um, talking through the announcement of it. And I, I guess the logic for it is, is great. Um, you've got community, journalists, um, somewhere in the middle are the facts um, and the, the story itself, and they're aiming to, to sort of solve that and, and um, yeah, I guess kind of get rid of some of the, um, the difficult things about news today. 
Is it that the sort of thing that you would you sign up for, or do you like the idea of getting news from a variety of sources and sort of being your own editor and figuring out what did actually happen? I really like to point that my friend Matt made. He um, said on Twitter today that he'd like to argue that tools and resources to verify existing articles across multiple disparate publishers is more in demand than a new publisher. And I thought that was a really good point. Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, that. There is a lot of um, duplication based on, you know, the old distribution model where you had to physically put something in someone's hands. Yeah. Um, and now um, there's lots of sort of fairly central and simple places where we can go and do that. So maybe the time is, is, is now for, for something like this. Um, it's interesting in that um, some of the people who um, stand to gain a lot from fake news are the ones that are also sort of inadvertently supporting something like um, Wiki Tribune to, to come out. Um, I do like the idea that someone like Trump would have to sort of um, be a lot tighter with with what they're doing and um, (laughs) (laughs) trying not to uh, eye rolling is not visible on radio. No, there's a lot of eye rolling going on right now. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's a it's a great idea. I think um, I think we should um, watch that one with interest. Um, another thing that is uh, did catch our eye is uh, Unroll Me and a bit of iffiness um, there, Joe. What's, yeah, what's so happening here? They're in the news this week. Um, Unroll Me are a service that you can uh, let at your inbox and they'll um, unsubscribe you from mailing lists and spammy stuff. Mm. Uh, there was a New York Times profile of Uber recently that mentioned Unroll Me's owners, Slice Intelligence, make their money by having a nosy in their users' inbox for email receipts so they can pass on that information about purchasing habits to third parties. Mm-hmm. So, in this example, Uber were using Slice to find Lyft receipts to get information on how much Lyft customers were spending. So that that popped up in the profile. And all of a sudden, Unrollme's users had read this profile and were all upset to learn about their collection of information. Mm. So... Despite it being in their terms and conditions, the users felt like Unroll Me weren't being as upfront about it as they should have been. Um, they do anonymise the information, but they've been criticised in the media for making their terms and conditions difficult to read on the website. So people are also obviously pointing it out how iffy it is that a company offering a service to manage your email subscriptions collects information mm. that way. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I do. I do like services like that, but um, yeah. I guess with anything, you really have to be careful about the the terms and conditions, and and it's one of the hard parts. No one sort of goes through and checks sort I of the permissions, and yeah. yeah, it is hard. I mean, it's also. I mean, some of the stuff like um, checkout. They did a great um, special recently about um, uh, what you can and can't do as a consumer based on um, you know the obligations of the um, the seller and the retailer, but. Yeah, you do actually have to make things fairly clear um, at the top and easy to discern and understand and so forth, which are a lot of places uh, famously don't do. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, one of the things that I did also want to um, talk about just quickly, um, uh, Google and Intertrust um, have come up with a, an idea called Patent Shield, um, continuing our theme of um, dubious um, security organisations um, tonight. Maybe they have a badge as well. Um, it helps startups um, to fight patent litigation and it's a service that's been designed to um, avoid um, frivolous litigation. Um, so a, a lot of the big uh, technology players uh, do sit on a lot of um, patents and they do um, obviously uh, also a lot of great work with um, with their technology as well. Um, but they've teamed up to um, make it easier for startups to protect themselves from patent litigation from other players um, in the space. Uh, and in return, um, Google is uh, after a, a piece of the um, business. 
in return. So it's actually not a bad idea. It's kind of like a library for um, for businesses. Um, and in return, you sort of take it under the wing of the, you know, um, the benevolent um, uh, tech kind of um, benefactor um, uh, in return for a, a slice of that. So actually... Uh, when I looked at this, I thought, oh, um, obviously, it's just a great way to bring startups closer to them and, um, and they can get a piece of that. But I actually don't mind the idea. I think the idea that um, it's very expensive for um, new businesses to protect themselves and protect their IP and make sure they're doing the right thing. They're not infringing on others to be across of developments and, uh, and so forth. So I, I kind of like the idea. I think it's kind of nice. I think everyone wins out of it. Um, yeah, I would, I would definitely give this a try. Um, Interestingly, um, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, IBM and others also teamed up last year to create uh, a new marketplace for buying and selling patents. So, um, yeah, there's always a lot of um, pressure on, on these businesses to do better in this space and I feel um, in a few areas they are, they are getting better, making it easier for, for people to access what they have and store and sit on and um, not just exploiting their, their dominant position all of the time which is good. Uh, if you do like uh, media, like Triple R, um, if you like technology, um, and if you like to get out, uh, one place that you can do that is Bar SK uh, on uh, Smith Street in Collingwood. And we're now joined by uh, Louis Lou Roots, um, who is uh, some of the brains um, behind uh, Bar SK. Um, Lou, thanks for coming in. Cheers. Uh, so how would you how would you describe Bar SK in a fantail wrapper. Like, what's the? Uh, it's a small bar slash playful media gallery. Is mm. kind of our little tagline. What's your What's your history in playful media? How did you decide that Melbourne needed some more playful media? Uh, well, we found it kind of a niche in. Uh, I think it's to sort of uh, address something. We we don't say video games because well, we try not to say video games. Mm. Um, that's what playful media is for. Mm. It means video games, but. When you say video games, it kind of uh, you get a lot of connotations coming out of it, and yeah, lots um, of people playing World of Warcraft or something like that. Yeah, it, it means a certain type of people. It means a certain type of space, and uh, we don't really find ourselves fitting into that sort of thing. So we try to use different terms, um, mm. and a lot of the stuff we also show is very um, throwaway or raw or uh, just badly made. So we also use the word like trash art mm. uh, or trash games because um, it has a even though it's American, it's sort of a different thing than garbage. But uh, yeah, so we've sort of struggled with um, terminology a lot because uh, so we we used to be game developers. Um, we made a lot of video games for social spaces, so things with um, physical controllers uh, and different controllers and things that would be they wouldn't be something you could download and play at home. They're just things that exist in a certain physical space, like a party or mm. a music festival or an arts festival. And you go there and you play it and it's just a it's a thing. It's an experience. I like the idea of having bar stools as a controller at a bar where you have <laughs> to get like the right configuration of people on the bar stools to unlock a tap or something like that. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. I mean, it's um, we've made a lot of different controllers. Um, we made stuff out of. Uh, we made one. We had a really good one out of a car once. Well, the front half of a car, nice. um, which people yeah sat in, drank in, um, climbed all over, broke a lot of stuff. Good for Daytona or something like that. Yeah, we we made our own our own game. It was a two player sort of. One person drove. The other person had a light gun in the passenger seat and shot at the wall. Um, there was a projector and stuff. But that's somewhere in WA rotting. It'll it'll be back one day. But yeah, we we started off in WA doing. Um, so backyard parties, and then we were running events um, 
or running stuff with fringe festivals and art festivals and then we started doing stuff internationally and every time we came to Melbourne it was a really good um, turnout, a really good vibe. Um, the, the development scene in, in little games over here is really nice. So when we did parties and stuff we would go away and then people would make more stuff while we were away and we'd have more things to show. Um, we ended up kind of curating more than we did uh, creating, uh, which is sort of where we sit in the moment. Um, so yeah, when we started looking internationally, we didn't really find anywhere that uh, any kind of sustainable business model around this stuff. Uh, so we kind of went back to when well, came home and thought, what do people do? They drink all the time, and that's where all our money goes. Something with alcohol is a great business model usually. That's yeah. Australia. <laughs> it's true. I mean, like, you know, especially where we were in Perth, you know, it's it's like the most expensive beer, but everyone buys it because it's just it's yeah, hmm. it's a great culture. What do you think it is about Melbourne that um, that we enjoy trash games or just playing with stuff and mucking around? Uh, funding. Um, <laughs> no, like, come on. We have to come out as well and, and actually use the stuff. So No, I mean, like, as in fu- funding for video games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Victoria's, like, you know, one of the only states that does it. Mm. And because you can fund, it, you know, primarily funds sort of more commercial video games, but because you can fund bigger video games, you get these There's people. a big community here. Yeah, yeah there's, it's, you know, 50% at the moment, 50% of games made in Australia are made in Victoria. Mm. Um, and that's only going to grow unless other states start doing funding because, you know, that's Victoria sucks in all the talent from around the, the country, mm. um, which is, you know, why I'm here. Joe, when you're not playing Werewolf, what, what, what sort of <laughs> games do you like to play? Well, I, um, I, I was just thinking about playful media um, <laughs> this morning when I was thinking about coming to the show and um, the last time I really got involved in such things was um, probably about 10 years ago and played a bunch of ARGs so um, the Lost Ring which was tied into um, the Olympics and it was funded by McDonald's and it was uh, a thing where we you had to get together in real life and actually play a sport that had been designed and Obviously, there was online stuff involved too, so it was kind of digital media heavy, but mm. there was really lovely real-life getting-together playfulness about it. Mm. Do, do you find um, people, the dynamic with gamers is a little bit different when they all get together? I, like I've, when I play games, I quite like, like I've been playing the new Zelda and just kind of uh-huh. it's an escape and you just go. Uh-huh. How is it different when you're interacting with people in a physical space? Well, I think it depends on, on the type of game. Um, mm. Like our bar exists really well in Melbourne because um, we've got, you've got a good ecosystem of like games spaces. Mm. Um, so like across the road from us is um, Pixel Alley. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Pixel Alley is great when people come in and they just go like I want to play Street Fighter and you go great great go across the road like it's right there um, if people go into the city and go to like Bartronica or mm. go out to um, Beta Bar they can play console stuff that they played at home and we show stuff that uh, you don't really like the idea is we show stuff that you haven't seen before mm. uh, and we also keep it rotating every couple of weeks so it's always fresh so when, whereas you might go to um, Pixel Alley and lock in to a game of Time Crisis uh, by yourself or with your mate, um, at our place it's kind of more, kind of like when you go to a gallery opening and you might spend five or ten minutes playing something or experiencing something. Um, maybe it's competitive or maybe it's just wandering around a space or something. Um, and then you go sit down and have a beer and have a chat and... Um, we try to keep enough spaces around the games mm. um, so that it's not 
like when you're sitting there playing um, or having a drink, you're not in the way of anyone playing a game. It's sort of a lot of the space is just there to exist and be around and ideally talk about games or be just involved with the space. Mm. And, and what do you think's um, been accepted really readily? What types of things do we like to play around with in, in Melbourne that maybe surprised you? Um, I mean, always like the multiplayer stuff always um, goes really well. Mm. Um, but we found um, we had a really nice exhibition of a local developer called Ian McClarty, Um and he's done amazing stuff. And his stuff's really um, short and succinct and well done and varied. Um, so we had a whole ex- uh, we did a whole solo exhibition of his stuff, um, and uh, we found a lot of his games rely on the player actually creating art. So uh, he does like full English breakfast, which is a picture of a full English breakfast, and your cursor, the mouse cursor, is either a knife or a fork, mm. uh, and that those implements smear the painting or the image in certain ways, and you kind of you just almost like as if it was wet paint, and you sort of finger paint with it and create whatever you like, um, which is such a, a very simple interaction. But uh, And I thought people would get kind of bored by it, but um, a lot of the people who came in really took to it and they made like really amazing different um, images out of it. Um, so like I think having this, these, little th- these little almost tools um, that give you a, lot, a bunch of constraints but allow you to be creative and express yourself and create something different um, those really work, um, and those work for anyone. Mm. Not not games people, uh, not tech savvy people. They work for yeah. uh, absolutely anyone who comes in because we do target a lot of people that aren't video game enthusiasts. Yeah, sure. There's, I mean, there's a there's a whole lot of people out there who just want to get out and do something interesting. So yeah, totally. That makes sense. Um, so if if you are sort of working on a project right now, if you're trying to sort of turn spatulas into controllers or something, what what kinds of projects do you want to hear from? What what do you think is either missing or you you get really excited by yourself personally? Um, I think a lot of the times when I see people uh, making games, um, uh, a lot of people make very complex things or they want to make a big thing, they want to make a, an MMO or a, um, some sort of multiplayer thing they can play online with their friends and um, but a lot of times when people uh, come like, you know, tell me about a game they're working on that's very simple, uh, very short, like that's that gets my attention because that kind of respects my time um, and it also works really well in space. Mm. Um, but a lot of, another thing that I find kind of uh, I'd like to see more of is people who, um, a lot of people who are making a game will come up to you and say, oh, I'm making this game, it's based on, uh, it's inspired by Doom or something. And you go, oh yeah, that other video game. Um, whereas sometimes some like, you know, a friend of mine came up and said they're making this game because they had avocado on toast that morning and the texture of the avocado was just right. It wasn't too hard, it wasn't too soft, it was amazing. And they wanted to make a game about it, uh, which is a lot more, like that excites me so much. Like, well, avocados. Yeah, you know. but how do you make that into a video game? I don't know. Um, mm. But like, you know, that's something I, I like to see people taking um, inspiration from things that have nothing to do with video games because video games at the moment are very produced and yeah, know. they're um, insular and they they ref- self-referential, and it only and it creates this problem we have where if I um, want to show a video game that uses a, an Xbox controller and someone comes in who doesn't play video games and they pick up a controller and it's got about 12, 15, 20 mm. different buttons and joysticks mm. and stuff all over it, they just get, they just, they put it down. Mm. Um, so that's when we started doing a lot of custom controllers and 
um, even just old joysticks and arcade buttons, mm. um, putting them in bits of wood, it just makes it a lot more tactile and a lot more mm. approachable. As a like uh, I'm, I'm going to say like a mild kind of controller kind of boffin I, mm-hmm. I, I think the design is really interesting and you're right like when a console comes out and it's not a great controller it's really off-putting mm-hmm. what, what are some of the funnest ways to, to do controllers do you think like something different that um, you've come across the best way so you have like for someone um, who's curious about it and wants to get into it uh, there are little devices called makey makeys mm. <clears throat> and um, they work off um, a contact but they work off uh capacitive touch so basically it means they're the ones you see on the net when people make a uh, controller out of bananas um, so you, you sort of you hold one wire and you touch the bananas with the other hand and it because it's, it goes through you it doesn't obviously electrocute you um, but it can register that um, and that's also that's just really easy to get into um, but I find um, personally like when I look to make controllers I look at the theme of the game and um, how I can sort of entwine the controller with the game. And ideally I want to get the biggest bang for my buck because I don't have a lot of time. So, um, you know, we made a game, uh, well, we we saw it, we (coughs) showed off a game from uh, Cape Town called uh, Genital Jousting, um, which is sort of uh, a multiplayer. Everyone's a a penis and they've got an arsehole between their balls and they have to um, slither around the ground and penetrate each other. the game ends up being really nice because it's actually all about mutual penetration, about how uh, you're not just penetrating other people, you're getting penetrated yourself. Mm. But, um, anyway, sorry, point aside from that, we, um, we did this uh, controller with uh, sex toys on the joysticks. Mm. And it, it was a very simple addition and it made a lot, of, um, a lot of people think about it. And a lot of people came in off the street just to play with it and mm. it was great. It was a very, very good time. So it's you, a fun way to approach something really easy. Yeah. You've got an exhibition about sex coming up soon? Yeah, in June, actually, yeah. It's um, about three weeks and it's co-produced with a, a group called uh, Blushbox, who are a local um, games uh, col- collaboration um, collective. There we go. Cool. Um, and they're, uh, yeah, they make, they make stuff and they promote uh, sex and love in video games. What can we expect to see in this exhibition? Um, a lot of different stuff. Um, we want to sort of show a lot of uh, different and complementary approaches to um, sex, romance, love, um, and all the topics that video games have a really hard time dealing with because of a lot of censorship and um, ratings problems. Yeah. So, yeah, um, we want to sort of showcase that there is the taboo in video games about about sex is, is very real and it's kind of pointless um, and just want to challenge a lot of people's expectations about what video games can can bring to the sort of romantic scene. How can we find out more about when this is on and what's happening? Uh, so we're going to be doing, a, we've got a mailing list, we'll put something out soon, hopefully if I get off my ass about it. But um, So that's on um, that's uh, www.barsk.com.au um, and then from there, there's also links to Facebook and Twitter and all those sort of things. Sounds like a great place to spend a, a winter's night um, with playful media. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very nice, very cosy. And we have a very nice beer selection as well. <laughs> Get on down. Uh, that is Bar SK. Um, Lou, thanks for coming in. No worries, thanks. 
if you um, like to uh, like your politics and if you like your budget, there's a lot of budget nerds listening to our show, um, I reckon. Um, the budget for Victoria is not too far away. Um, I'm looking at the very exciting countdown clock. is about 13 days uh, and a few hours and a few minutes away. Um, and one of the things you can do uh, around the budget that's a little bit more interesting than uh, watching the ABC is getting involved in Budget Hack. Uh, Code for Australia and Datavik have got together and there is going to be a budget hack. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for coming in tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so where did this idea come from? Who thought we should hack the budget? It's something that deserves being hacked. Um, and what is a hack? Um, so I'll start off talking about where the, I guess, the idea came from. So last year was the first time that um, we released a large chunk of the Victorian state budget online. So if you go to budget.vic.gov.au, you'll see um, our first attempt of trying to take a document that's really dense and quite difficult to understand and reimagine it in a way that makes more, I guess, more, makes more sense to more Victorians. And so while we were doing that, we started sort of thinking about the question of how do you actually bring that to life, that process to life. And so we, we follow a very UX-driven um, approach to building sites. But a lot of the things that we started talking about was that if this is all about making the budget more accessible, more interesting and, um, and usable, then why don't we do that in collaboration with the community? So how do, how do people usually find out about the budget, whether it's good, bad? How, how, how can we generally make a balanced assessment of the budget? Well, so um, really it's through the media. It seems to be the, 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 the most common way that people will, will find out what's going on and what it means for them. Um, the, I guess the, the traditional way of budget release is it literally looks like a pile of three, four phone books um, of really of, of a, a bunch of... It's very dry stuff. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, okay, and you kind of have to, we have to pick a way over it and you've got sort of media with various agendas and so forth and you have to read all of it. But the, the aim of this is to provide something that's accessible, easy, fairly neutral. Um, what, what have you set out to achieve, do you think? Well, so the, the, the process of budget hack is really to try and, um, if, if our end point is trying to make the information more accessible, mm. then how would different people from different points of view um, and different backgrounds go about trying to trying to achieve that. Yeah, nice one, Jethma. Um, and Sunil, what, what sort of made uh, Code for Australia sort of interested in this and what where did you sort of see the immediate appeal in, in being involved in this? Um, I think for from our perspective or from, from the perspective of of the, the community, having an having an involvement in um, finding different ways to interpret the budget, like you were mentioning before, Warren, that it's the media that tend to read the budget and read the budget with with an agenda and I think that uh, an event like Budget Hack invites the community into that process and I think from from my perspective if we have a good night um, what we see is members of the community sort of coming in with a set of concerns and developing ways in which we can not only communicate um, those agendas through the, the budget data but work out new and interesting ways to read the budget with those agendas at the sort of foreground. Mm, nice. Um, do you guys, what's your history with the budget generally? Is it something that just kind of skates by you, but you're like, okay, now we can actually finally get involved and do something interesting with it. <laughs> Jethma, what, what, what's your history with the budget? Oh, look, so for me, it's just something that happens every year, right? And then mm. you, you, you read the papers and try and work out what it means. Mm. Um, 
last year, so I've only been working in government for about three years, mm-hmm. um, and I'd say last year was the one where I really, um, so talking state budget, really sort of got involved or understood, and that was through the process of of um, trying to reimagine it and trying to redesign it. Um, not the budget, but the, mm. the way it's, it's communicated. Oh, your, your master plan becomes <laughs> clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so prior to that, it was just this thing that happened. Um, it's important. It means that a lot of stuff changes or doesn't change based mm. on how much you earn, where you live, um, your gender, your um, stage of life, all of that stuff. Mm. Um, but going through that process sort of just helped around contextualising it. Hmm. One of the things that always annoys me about the reporting on the budget is the hip pocket nerve, the way they're just like, here's what it means for, you know, working families and it, it all just becomes very dry. Sunil, do you think there's a way that we can get a different perspective on something like this if we have sort of better data and better access to it? Or Yeah, yeah I think um, one of the, the concerns um, that I have, I guess, and, and I've, unlike Jitma, who's been in government for three years, I've, I've been in government for about three minutes. Um, <laughs> and I sort of look at this from a, from an, a fairly academic perspective. My background's in, in the academy. And I, I think one of the, the sort of interesting things about the budget is it's called the budget. And, and the, the the in the budget sort of su- suggests this sort of singular thing that, mm. that should should be looked at in isolation. It's the final the, version. We've made the, it. That's right. The four the four phone books and and I think that one of the ways that um, the budget data can be made more meaningful is to interface that data with different data sources that are available publicly and have people with different agendas and different concerns come in and and look at different data sets that can be um, used in conjunction with the budget data to start imagining kind of new problems and new issues and new implications for for various groups and on the the night for Budget Hack we have um, access to the urban Urban Research Infrastructure Network, or ORIN, who are um, also opening up their their data for participants on the night so they can look at the budget data and the ORIN data sort of in conjunction with one another and Mm. and look at ways in which we can sort of reread some of those dry um, numbers that that usually sit in isolation and expressed in terms that only really make sense to people in government. Mm. Do you have any examples of sort of how you can match an interesting data set with the budget? Like what sorts of things might people try and do on the hack or what sort of... Um, the one of the projects that won last year's budget hack was called Bling My Suburbs, ah. um, and that was a, a sort of mashing of budget data and spatial data, which allowed users to sort of go in and hover over their particular suburb and look at what was sort of being spent versus the the population in that area, and then looking at sort of how much money has been spent per individual um, in a particular suburb, and that's mm. sort of organised right down to to postcode level. Mm, nice. Um, Joe, what, what would you like to know about uh, your postcode in terms of the budget, do you think? What sort of things spring to mind as you cycle around or...? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, li- I live on the, the bike highway, so mm. I don't know if there's any spending on the bike paths and I don't that know. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Is, is it, I'm just wondering what I would like to... Oh, potholes. Massive one. I'm, I was a big fan of the um, when they got the um, chief digital officer in New York. Um, uh, her name escapes me uh, a few years ago, but um, lots of great stuff started coming out around like you know mm. pothole trackers where you could just like text a photo of the pothole and somebody from the city had come out and cleaned it up straight away. Is there, is is there like a bit of a, a groundswell of citizen activism around? I mean, you know, obviously around data, and that's something that you could talk at length about. But what what does the average citizen want to get out of something like? Um, um, budget hack and better access to to um, information from a financial perspective. Well, so from last year, what it seemed that a lot of the th- 
like the general theme, a lot of the projects that, that people put forward were about, well, they sort of covered a couple of different things. A lot of it was trying to contextualise mm-hmm. and that contextualising sort of hit a couple of different levels. So one was around um, almost like trying to translate a government speak into yeah. something that's, that's more easily accessible. Another angle was around what does it mean for me? And so looking at sort of those, I guess, circles around you, so personal for yourself, Mm. for your family, for your community. Mm. Um, So those sorts of themes really seem to come out of a lot of the projects last year. So Sunil mentioned Bling My Suburb. The other one, um, I think the runner-up, were were one that allowed you to sort of of build your profile. It was was an app-based thing where you could say, okay, um, this is my age, this is my... um, my gender, mm. um, and this is broadly where I lived, and then mm. sort of um, it would try and um, go through all of that information and come up with a, a view. Mm. I just thought of one called Australia's Biggest Loser, where we get to look at all the money that's being put into our pockets and all the people that are, are losing <laughs> as, a, as a result of that. And as a data viz, I think that'd be really nice. Um, so, uh, Sunil, I understand this is maybe going to be your first hack that you're involved in. Is that right? It is. It's, it's my, my very first uh, ah. very first hack. Um, I think... Uh, do you, are you going to, like, actually participate and try and do something yourself or are you just as an observer or...? Um, I'd, I'd like to. I think I'd like to, to maybe go talk to some, some technical people mm. and, you know, work um, with different types of skill sets to, to maybe start sort of imagining different issues and, and, and looking at ways in which different policy agendas um, sort of come out of, of budget decisions. Mm. Um, and I think that, that one of the, the, the sort of ambitions that, that we have for Budget Hack is to, to get a diversity of people and get different types of people involved and get people working in, in urban planning or get doctors and, and lawyers and sort of people outside of the, the sort of traditional um, image that, that people have of, of, of hackathons um, into the into the the environment and and start sort of working with that data, hmm. but um, yeah, I might I might I might go and and, and mingle and, and and see if I can talk to some people and maybe maybe make something. I don't think I qualify for the prize though. <laughs> no, you'll be fine. Like I think it's a, it's a pretty good weekend. Like if you can get the weekend off and you know smash a few pizzas and yeah, we actually do it slightly differently. So it's actually oh. not over one weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, we do it over two nights non consecutively. Mm. Um, so oh, that's much being, more civil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go home and think about this, guys. It's 11 o'clock. Exactly. And then spend some time um, sort of prototyping or whatever you want to do. And then um, I think it's two weeks later. Um, I'm looking at Sunil for the dates. Uh, oh, we have the dates here. Yep. So the, the kickoff is um, on the 3rd of May mm-hmm. uh, between 6 and 9 p.m. And that's down at Thought, ThoughtWorks um, on Collins Street. And then there's a, a sort of event in the middle there um, a week later on the 10th of May um, where the teams will get a chance to, to work on their, on their entries and then the 17th of May um, at 6 o'clock there's the, the announcement of the winners. Uh, and how do you think this will run in parallel with the, the kind of mainstream story about the budget and was it good and was it bad? And uh, is it the sort of thing... I mean, obviously, you can let us know how it went and we're happy to tell you what went on. How, how do you... How do you generally disseminate um, what's a good idea? I'd, I'd, I'd hope that it becomes part of the story. Ah. Um, 
uh, about the budget, and I think that 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 kind of citizenry involvement would be would be a really great mm. uh, a great win mm. for um, for for the partners sort of involved in this event, but also for the community in general to to sort of mm-hmm. have those discourses become part of the the story around the budget, and obviously the the, the story that the media tell mm. um, around the budget. And I think that that's a that that would be a really great um, a great win for us. Yeah, it seems like it's very hard to get involved in the budget process for the the average Victorian in the lead up, and then as you said, Sunil, it's kind of presented, and here it is as a sort of fait accompli. But it would be nice if there was like a, almost a reaction from the public, or like a right of reply or something like that. That's right. That's right. A, a right of reply, but also that that idea of of of, of being able to um, to do something with how people interrogate the budget in the future or the types of the types of things that people uh, want to point out about uh, how the budget affect them and those those stories and those narratives I think are really important so if uh, if people were to go to one place and find out more about this it's up on the eventbrite page but is there a, a single URL that people should check out um, data gov yeah, and and search for for budget hack, guys. It looks like a, a great event, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who'd love to get along and uh, form some teams. And um, yeah, we'd love to hear in uh, in a few weeks' time how it went and uh, what weird and crazy stuff came up. Um, Maybe maybe we could do Australia's Biggest Loser, Sunil. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it is 7.54. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R on a Wednesday evening in Melbourne with Joe and Warren. Um, just a few minutes left. Uh, we do have a few uh, events and bits and pieces to tell you about before we go. Uh, Laneway Learning is an awesome way to uh, find out about new stuff and they're putting on uh, an interesting um, session on the 16th of May, Automation and the End of Human Employment. Um, we have had a few chats about this um, over the past year or so about um, technological unemployment and universal basic income and, and stuff like that, Joe. So, um, yeah, robots, they're taking our jobs. What can we do about it? Fight back, join in. Universal basic income. Universal basic income sounds pretty good. Sit in a hammock. Um, that's a nice idea. You've got to keep having ideas, though. You've got to, you've got to keep contributing. Anyway, universal basic income. Um, so if you'd like to get involved uh, in this session, uh, the class will look at the current state of automation technology and its impact, uh, likely growth, uh, rate of growth of automation, implications, social, economic and political consequences of the shift and um, the options that we have. Uh, so Gordon Young, who's a professional ethicist and environmental consultant um, and a lecturer in professional ethics at RMIT, uh, will be uh, uh, chairing that session. So um, that's pretty fun. It's uh, 14 bucks. Uh, and um, yeah, we'll um, tweet a link out. It's at in Big and Books uh, in the C- CBD in Melbourne. Um, another thing that we did want you to know about, um, just as we get to the weird and wacky stuff at the end of the show. Um, I do like a worm, uh, especially a vigilante worm. Um, Brickabot is one of those that destroys insecure Internet of Things devices. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that there is connected and surveilling, um, keeping our uh, air conditioning running. Um, Internet of cows. Internet of cows, which um, is a big story that's set to break, uh, I feel. Um uh, yeah, um, there's a lot of that stuff out there. Um, a hacker called The Janitor has created multiple versions of a program called Brickabot. Um, it just sets out to um, break stuff, um, as you've probably figured out. Um, a researcher has been following it and um, uh, I guess made an intervention um, with um, The Janitor. Um, he was dismayed by the indiscriminate uh, denial of service attacks by uh, IoT botnets in 2016 and thought um, he'd be on the front foot about that. Um, I don't know. Is that something you'd be too concerned about? Do you have too many IoT devices in your house or, uh, or in your workplace? 
We were talking about this the other week on the show mm. and I realised I had very little of anything connected to anything. So mm. I think I'm I think I'm feeling pretty brick safe. Yeah. My 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 fridge is dumb. Um you know, um, my fridge is so dumb that it tries to leak sometimes. Well, there you go. It needs, yeah. it needs a diaper. Um, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, I, I think, like a lot of hacks, it's coming from the right place and um, trying to um, achieve um, something. But um, yeah, an interesting execution. Um, speaking of strange ideas and strange inventions, um, so, you've been watching one, haven't you? So sometimes you read a headline that's just so out there that you don't really want to read the article, that just the headline is enough. And um, this wonderful headline is uh, Google's Sergey Brin said to be working on a Zeppelin-like airship. Oh. Um, I kind of don't really want to know anything more than that. Apparently the details are scarce anyway. Um, Probably just trying to take on Amazon, I'm sure. Uh, what, delivery by Zeppelin? Yeah, distribution. Yeah. Like, yeah. Better than drones. Better than drones. Bigger, more impressive. Yeah. The logo looks great on the side. So apparently... Uh, <laughs> Bryn likes aeronautics, and um, that's which about self-respecting all we know. tech entrepreneur doesn't want to put something big in the sky? Yeah, it's the way it's going. Uh, it is uh, seven fifty-eight uh, on Bite Into It on Triple R. Um, we've had a lot of fun tonight. Um, there's lots of good stuff going on um, uh, in Melbourne, um, and as the weather gets cold, um, get out your technology. Um, whether it's um, at home working on the budget, um, hacking some stuff up. Um, definitely going to be heading to Bar SK for some of those exhibitions coming up. Bar SK is probably a good idea as well. Um, so thanks to our guests, thanks to Lou and to Sunil and Jithma. Uh, we've been bought into it. Uh, it's been Joe and Warren. There'll be another bunch of humans back next week. Um, up next is Anthony Carew. I'm pretty sure he's going to do International Pop Underground, but hang out for a few more minutes and find out. Have a great night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.